Welcome to the Food for Thought podcast. I'm your host, Erin Hallstrom. This month, we're featuring a two-part series on scaling up your CPG business for growth. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. James Richardson. Richardson is a cultural anthropologist turned market researcher who now helps CPG entrepreneurs scale for growth. We talk about why entrepreneurs want to grow fast and set unrealistic forecasts, as well as the mistakes that CPG entrepreneurs repeatedly make. Listen and enjoy, and be sure to come back in two weeks for part two of the series, when we talk about risk, reward, and the important difference between being memorable versus being unique. Enjoy the episode! Hello, James. Welcome to the Food for Thought podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Erin. Thanks for having me. Let's start off filling the audience in with who you are and what your background is. Sure. Uh, I'm a cultural anthropologist by training, and I I left academia over 20 years ago uh, to get into the, originally into the work of market research, and I joined a company out near Seattle that specialized in natural organic food. So it was an interesting segue. Uh, I think I I talked about it on another podcast um, uh, in the following way, uh, which I think your listeners will appreciate, which is, you know, anthropologists are uh, notorious, especially American anthropologists, are notorious for sort of studying weird, deviant, marginal sort of sociocultural groups around the world (laughs) or inside the United States. Um, We're attracted to weird stuff. Um, And that is sort of how my mind thinks. So when I left academia, I was intrigued by the natural organic food movement, which I wasn't a participant in at the time. So it it seemed weird to me. So that was automatically interesting. Um, I, I like the idea of a company that would just be focused on something that bizarre. It tickled my mind. So. Um, that's my, my professional sort of training, per se. But the rest of my background is in the world of market research and uh, strategic planning for uh, large and mid-sized sort of mid-market CBG brands as well as personal care and beauty brands. That, you know, the work I used to do before I went out on my own was, was more about the application of emerging behavioral trends, consumer trends onto these businesses. But right now I work mainly with early stage companies. In your book, Ramping Your Brand, you talk about why a number of CBG entrepreneurs want to grow fast and set unrealistic forecasts, which turn out to be counterproductive. Can you explain that a little further? I often meet, I continue to meet them, um, folks who seem to believe that with enough forethought in today's market, um, you can declare a product done, uh, get it out into thousands of doors, maybe a thousand or two thousand, as fast as possible, uh, and then raise some money, and then hit the gas some more. 
uh, and that your journey to 10 million is going to be uh, relatively quick. Or, or I even meet people who think their journey to 100 million is going to be relatively quick. Usually what's going on is that they're, they're, um, they spent a couple of years already uh, making no money, developing a thing. <laughs> and it's often the no money that they have. <laughs> so it's like their own money they've been spending. Um, and this induces a massive amount of impatience in a lot of people. And so then they want to get big. They want to get seven-figure, eight-figure really, really fast. But the problem with that is that this is usually the folks who are absolutely new to consumer packaged goods, and they don't understand how oversupplied the market is at the shelf, and they don't understand how competitive it is during this journey uh, towards 100 million bucks or, or even 50 million. So um, they have an oversimplified view of how fast they're going to grow. Some of these folks have had their mind poisoned by investors who don't know what they're doing as well, to be honest with you. Because <laughs> so, they will then find someone who they, can, they think they can control that entrepreneur, and then they will fund them too much and tell them to hit the gas. And then the entrepreneur is actually being led by someone who actually doesn't know what they're doing. That's actually more common than you might imagine. Um, and that has to do with the oversupply of capital. <laughs> There's two forces, misguided investors and venture capitalists, as well as just naive entrepreneurs who are rightfully, I think, getting a little impatient at the end of their product development cycle, that initial product development phase. They're like, I want to get out and make money. Uh, but as I say in the book, and I, I would challenge most innovation teams at big companies who listen to this as well, uh, who, and I've worked with many of them, uh, who have tried and failed to sell in a test and learn, test in market, iterate in market model to their senior management, and they won't do it. But the, the data is very clear that that's the absolute best way to innovate, especially on the higher end of the market, where every nuance matters. And so there's just no, you cannot market research your way in advance and solve the problem. There's just no way. I, I used to do that work for years. It doesn't work. <laughs> so uh, it really doesn't work for premium goods. So the, you know, folks need to throttle their growth so that they can iterate in the market at very, very small scale, scale with very little capital expense. And then when they find out that you know, their flavors are wrong or something else is wrong, they have time and the luxury of small scale to, to change what they're doing. Uh, and, and once they've adapted it in the marketplace with real consumers, not these weirdos who take 25-minute surveys at market research companies <laughs> in which they imagine what it would be like to have your thing in a two-dimensional linguistic description. But real people actually putting it in their mouth, that's when the magic happens. That's when you actually are able to learn, oh, okay, this is what we need to do. So I'm very passionate about iterating in the market. And I, and I, I, I mean, I can't share publicly, but there's just a very long rolling list of folks who try to hit the gas. They have a flawed product, uh, and it blows up. <laughs> it, it continues to happen. <laughs> so, uh, what was one of my big inspirations in writing the book was slow down, folks. Slow down. <laughs> um, well, so hope that answers but, your question. Yeah, it does. actually, um, so it answers it, but I'm going to ask for you to elaborate a little further <laughs> about how, <laughs> uh, bear with me, how can these entrepreneurs 
um, dare I say, slow down and set a reasonable, fast growth rate. And I use that fast because I just said slow down. How can these entrepreneurs (laughs) set a reasonable, fast growth rate while competing with the bigger, more well-funded companies? So I, um, I recognize that, as I said earlier, it's an oversupplied market. It's oversupplied with venture capital as well, even with the pandemic. It's still oversupplied. Um, so there's just a lot, of, there's a lot of forces of potential growth. And there's a lot of fuel out there. Um, and so it may, it, there's an environment in which you do want to move relatively fast once you've finalized your thing and you've figured out your playbook. You do want to hit the gas a lot earlier than you would have 10 or 15 years ago, Aaron, uh, for sure. But when I talk about the growth rate that's optimal, it's between 75 and 200% year over year. Now, for some people, that seems like crazy, like I've, I've never grown that fast. Um, but the people that I wrote the book for are the folks who are actually tempted to try to basically launch a rocket. And I meet these folks all the time. What I like about them is their, their ambition. But what, what we need to do is pull that back in a little bit so that you can get to, say, a quarter million or half a million in annual sales as fast as possible. But then constrain your growth on a year-over-year basis to that you know, 75 to 200%. And I like to, people just to think about doubling your business every year from that point onwards. And what that does is it buys you a couple of years there and where you can iterate. You're not, becoming, you're not overnight becoming a $10 million business. Because once you do that, you are going to have far fewer ability, far, far less ability to retool your business. And, or if you do, it is going to be an excruciatingly stressful and painful thing to go through. <laughs> when it's your business and it's, you know, even when you have, an, and when you have investors involved, because they, if they gave you money at $5 million and you say at $10 million you want to redo your brand identity and then you want to switch to a new category, they're going to run. Get to that half million or so as fast as you can, then throttle your growth in that, ratio, in that range I talked about. Iterate, complete, know why your consumers are buying the product. Make your final tweaks before you start raising money and hitting the gas. And so it usually ends up being a couple years, which is the difference. And that's where you have to have patience. <laughs> You've got to realize, Aaron, that a lot of these people, they spend a, a year or two's screwing around with product development in a somewhat amateurish manner with co-manufacturers, right, um, who are professionals, but they're not really putting a lot of thought into what they do with an entrepreneur because they have too many large private label runs. They have to get perfect for Kroger <laughs> and Safeway. So they don't spend a lot of time with my clients either. Um, so you've got a semi-finished idea out in the market. The entrepreneur has been waiting to sell. They're impatient. Um, if it takes them a first year to get to half a million, that's actually a really good year, by the way, when you do random sample analysis of startups. That's like a fantastic first year. Uh, very unlikely, by the way. It's much more likely you're going to get to a couple hundred thousand in your local market than the next year you can double and then double and then double. But if you do the math, I mean, that is a much more gradated exponential growth curve with a, with a, ramp, with a lead-in to the ramp. Then you get coming out of people's mouths that, trade show conversations where they get very uh, uh, excited about the future and the potential. <laughs> they start thinking 10 million in two years. Uh, and all I can say is 
um, getting to 10 million in two years, you're more wind, you're more likely to wind up with a. Honestly, uh, the data is very clear from the research I've done. You're more likely to wind up with a failed line extension like from a big company than a growing business that's healthy. Because um, when you grow that fast and you don't have a marketing budget, you can't build awareness. Then you don't. You're just shipping product, and, and it's going to sit there. <laughs> um, and this has happened many times. Uh, many times it continues to happen. So that's the magic target rate: seventy-five percent to two hundred percent. Okay. Everyone listening, make sure you write that down. <laughs> if you haven't bought and read the book already, make sure you write that metric down. Um, yeah. So what are other than what you've talked about so far? What are some of the mistakes that you see food founders and entrepreneurs repeatedly making? Um, it's interesting. And I work primarily in the natural organic end because that's where 95% of the actual innovation is in terms of where the number of brands being formed. I think those who are working and listening in bigger corporations may not be aware of that. Um, but that's where actually most of the launching is happening is in this premium end. So I just want to say that up front as a, before I go into these things. <laughs> um, so so uh, the, one I just, the one I've already talked about is, is over-distributing too quickly. Another um, mistake that I see is taking on too much money too early from investors. Uh, and all I can say is that I, I've, I've circulated in the investment environment long enough now to tell you, and some of them have endorsed my book. Um, although maybe a few regret it. <laughs> but the reality is with investors, uh, the farther down the revenue curve to, towards zero revenue that they want, they come clamoring to you to invest, the more suspicious you should be. The, the most seasoned, very smart value-add investors don't invest in anybody under $10 million. So they just don't especially in food, is food brands are particularly tough to scale. Uh, and I think that has a lot, to, a lot of that has to do with just the, the cultural behavioral inertia that humans have with their food choices. It's much different than beverages and much different than personal care and household cleaners. Right? So it's very hard to get people to sort of switch out a brand uh, for anything you know, in food, much harder. Uh, the, another mistake that founders make is they uh, underestimate what they need to add a store to build memorability and build enthusiasm uh, and to drive trial. And that often gets, to be honest, it often gets dismissed as, oh, not necessary because you're too small for that and you don't have the money for that. Um, and the people who usually tell my clients that are usually brokers and sales consultants who, again, don't know quite exactly what they're doing. <laughs> so, um, but the reality is in a market that's oversupplied, like I said before, you've got to work even harder basically from day one, figuring out how am I going to, with my limited cash, get the word out, at least in my original market, um, so that people become aware that I even exist. Right? And how, am I, how am I going to do this without paid advertising? Uh, and that, that is, there are hundreds of tactics I, that I talk about in the book that allow you to go do this, and they don't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. But here's the thing, Aaron. <laughs> the reason, and you're, you're probably going, well, if they're so cheap, James, why aren't they all being executed? I'm like, you know what? They take time. 
they take time and they take charismatic leadership to suck time out of employees and part-time workers. Um, in other words, there's a leadership burden early on if you want to grow exponentially from very early on. You've got to be working at a store and you can't be using the expensive normative techniques that you know, Pepsi and Coca-Cola would use with a product launch. You can't afford them. So what you can afford are time-intensive things like field marketing, event marketing. And, and honestly, with a lot of founders I meet, they're so exhausted from ops and sell-in and everything else that they're out. They're like, I'm out. Nope. I'm out. I'm done. I need to sleep. <laughs> right. And I, you know, that's a personal decision that I would never judge anyone for making. But if you run your company that way in the first couple million, I, I'm willing to bet $1,000 cash you'll never ride the ramp. And, and maybe you don't need to. Maybe, maybe you'll grow geometrically at 20%. You'll have a nice private business and you'll be fine. I know people who run $5 million businesses that don't grow and they're happy because they're stable. Right? I mean, that's a whole universe. But I think if you really want to grow and scale your business and have that big impact with your innovation, you have to be doing basically a holistic 4P playbook right from the beginning, and that is what is very rare. Um, it continue, I see people who, not just for reading my book, but just from networking, they're also doing that and following that model. And I'm telling you, man, if you bake it into day one, of your operations, it's much less exhausting <laughs> than if you get to like a million and a half and James Richardson comes in and says, um, yeah, you need to start doing event marketing because <laughs> you basically want to, sh they just want to shoot me. <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> so, um, that's why I wrote the book, Aaron, because I want to get some of this stuff out before you, <laughs> obviously before you ever come to work with me or anybody else. Just understand these ideas, bake them into your company early. Because the big weapon you have against Pepsi and Coke, or even a big nine-figure premium or natural brand, is that you're not boring yet. You're interesting. You're new. And if you do play your cards right, you can have a more human connection that's intimate with your fans in the first five years or so than they ever can. And they ever, their bureaucracy will ever let them have. And, you've got, and that is all about time and sweat. It's like no other way around. It. Right. Because, <laughs> well, you know, the guys, at, the guys at General Mills aren't going to go and do exhausting field marketing. That, they didn't get an MBA to do that. So. Indefinitely, and I don't remember if I read this in your book exactly or if it's just the time of year that it is, it's almost as if you're saying don't throw all your money in your one 30-second Super Bowl ad. You would be much better <laughs> off locally yeah. talking to the people who would consume your product locally near where you're at and get, yes. you know, do your product development locally rather than, mm -hmm. you know, the 30-second splash that you're, you'll be lucky if anybody remembers who you are six months from now. So I, I think the advertising thing is, yeah, it, it's generally beyond the reach financially, so it's never even considered. But, but the reality is that, um, you know, in the early years, when you don't have a lot of cash, um, people think they can't do anything out of store. They're like, well, I can't afford anything. I, I, every time I call someone and they give me a bid, and I was like, stop calling agencies, stop calling all these vendors, stop right now. You're going to do it. You're going to do the out of, store, your out of store work. You're going to literally beg your friends and family to do it with you. 
And my favorite thing is you're going to hire your fans part-time to do it because that's exactly what KindBar did. And that's actually not expensive. Right? So uh, KindBar was a master once they figured out that yoga teachers were basically selling their product to thousands of people for free. They just started hiring them part-time. So, uh, and they would flood them, with, flood them with cases of product, get them out in the events. Um, they also had their own internal staff, but, but that, not, that mix is really nice because it's high energy. Get out there, show your passion. People respond to passion, right? So if you can get out into your local community, once this pandemic eases, right, it's going to be a lot easier to do what I'm talking about. Um, and it will come back. Uh, but that's what you need to do is get out in your local community. Build, keep showing up at events that are weekly and monthly, obviously annual, but preferably weekly and monthly. Keep showing up. That's what burn, That's your free advertising. And you know, as I talk about in the book, to create like a million or $2 million business in one city, large city, you don't need a lot of customers there. This is not about mass conversion. <laughs> I mean, we're talking literally 10,000 people. That may seem like a lot when you're zero, um, but if you keep showing up, it builds. Um, and you're more likely to get an efficient return out of event marketing and just showing up in public dressed in your trademark than you'll ever get from social media at the same level of scale. And then part of it is that you know, when, you're in, when brands are new, and I don't know, I, I haven't figured out the, the uh, social psychology of this, but maybe I'll write a book about it someday. But basically when a trademark is new, people actually, they, they instinctively don't trust it, Aaron. <laughs> and especially in food. Because it's going inside your, this thing is going in your body. <laughs> so it's sort of like, um, you would prefer to have a known brand feed you, not some woohoo, fly by night thing run by an amateur. Right? That doesn't inspire anybody to try it. So if you show up as a human, literally giving your thing away, you have something that's much more effective than like showing up in somebody's Instagram feed in the same city randomly. Uh, it's much more memorable. So it's also a lot cheaper. <laughs> so uh, you know you've got to be willing to to take take that risk. And and um, memorability is both a, has a human dimension to it, but there's also a symbolic dimension to it in terms of what you are communicating. everyone listening to the Food for Thought podcast today, thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about everywhere you can listen to a podcast. Be sure to tune in next time as we talk more about the stories behind the headlines of the food and beverage industry. Take care. Have a great day.